brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shinise O'Mara. And I'm Emma Keeling. Today on the podcast, we look at the effect COVID-19 could be having on our brains. You know, respiratory viruses can affect the brain. So there's a long history of influenza virus uh, being able to cause neurological uh, disturbances. And I take a look at an ambitious effort to map the ocean floor. I guess from a science perspective, it was fascinating because we went out to this part of the Coral Sea that hadn't been very well mapped before. We we really didn't know much about what was living down there. While we're recovering from COVID-19, we're starting to learn more about the lasting effects of the virus. What do you have in store for us today, Emma? I spoke to Professor Robert Stevens from Johns Hopkins Medicine in Maryland, and he explains how COVID-19 affects the brain. We certainly are seeing a large number of reports that have been published over the past uh, six, seven months documenting an association between COVID-19 and uh, neurological manifestations. And uh, these manifestations are extremely um, variable. They go from things like headache to loss of smell and taste to to, um, states of confusion, coma, stroke, seizures, um, you know, as well as some, um, uh, you know, issues involving the spinal cord and even the peripheral nerves. So uh, there's a very strong signal in the medical scientific literature that COVID-19 is, uh, is associated with neurological manifestations. And, uh, and some of these are very serious. I mean, so we're talking about people with strokes, we're talking about people with um, brain inflammation and cephalitis. Uh, and so when I speak of a secondary pandemic, I'm speaking about these, um, I guess, repercussions of infection with the disease. Uh, and uh, some of which I believe could have, uh, you know, and many of my colleagues as well believe could have some long lasting affects way beyond the acute phase of infection. So what we're hearing about here is that there might be an even bigger problem than what we first thought about. I know, it just keeps coming at the moment, doesn't it? Just when you think, oh, surely that's it. But yeah, maybe if we think of it in this way, the more scientists know, the better they can develop treatments, right? And we're already seeing that in COVID patients who develop blood clots. But let's get back to the brain. So you might feel a bit better if I give you some percentages. So uh, delirium is distressing, but it's not fatal, and it affects about 40% of patients with moderate and severe COVID-19 in hospitals. The really scary stuff is more rare. So 3 to 5% of patients suffer stroke or, uh, you know, which, or ischemic stroke, which is caused by a blockage in the artery that supplies the brain. And the other manifestations such as encephalitis or spinal cord inflammation are really rare. But of course, all these symptoms are not unusual when it comes to viruses, which is why I asked Professor Stevens if SARS-CoV-2 affects the brain differently compared to other viruses. Yeah, so probably uh, we're not sure that it does. Uh, What we know is that uh, a number of, um, you know, respiratory viruses can affect the brain. So there's a long history of influenza virus uh, being able to cause neurological uh, disturbances. This was extremely well documented in the uh, Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919, where a number of um, you know people who had the disease also developed you know things like delirium encephalitis and also some more delayed effects uh, such as encephalitica, um, lethargica, uh, Parkinson's, and maybe even dementia were associated with that uh, flu pandemic. So certainly the influenza viruses can cause neurological disturbances. We know that coronaviruses uh, have uh, neurotropism, so this was shown 
2003 with the SARS, so the SARS-CoV virus, uh, was shown to be able to infect the brain and cause encephalitis. Uh, we also know that the, the Middle Eastern respiratory virus, uh, the MERS-CoV, uh, is also able to enter the brain and cause encephalitis. So it seems that coronaviruses have a propensity to, um, you know, to enter the brain and cause neurological disease. Um, either that's one mechanism, but I think probably what we're going to find out, uh, the, the prevailing mechanism is, is indirect, meaning not the invasion of the brain, but um, causing brain disturbances through either physiologic changes or immunologic changes. He mentions encephalitis a lot, but what exactly is it? It's the inflammation of the brain usually caused by an infection. So it's it's easy to sound like you're scaremongering when you do these stories. Um, and although it is a serious condition, it is rare. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> You've done a lot of COVID-related stories, particularly coming from a biological point of view. Do you think in all the stories you've covered that doctors and medical people are closer to getting a handle on COVID-19? Well, I guess, you know, every every new re- research paper that comes out, yeah, they, they're getting closer and closer, but they are still discovering new things. And we've got to remember that it usually takes decades to understand pathogens. I mean, look at HIV. It's been around for around 40 years since it appeared in the human population. And effective treatments have been developed, but there's still no cure. And SARS-CoV-2 has only been with us for, what, around nine months? But because of the scientific collaboration, they are understanding how the virus attacks quicker than they possibly normally would. Okay, so, I mean, you've been doing the COVID stories too. What do you think? Do you think we're getting better at figuring out COVID-19? Well, I don't want to be negative, but it seems like the more we learn, the more we realise we don't know. Mm. Um, Mm. But I think, you know, in our very human way, we are slowly chipping away at this huge rock that is called COVID-19 and we're starting to form some kind of idea about this virus but my gosh it's so smart I mean it feels like it's really outsmarted us Um, but you know we're good at solving problems and I think we're coming at it from various angles I mean the stories you've covered are quite different to the stories I've covered and so lots of people are doing lots of different things and that's really reassuring Um, So I think we're getting there slowly, but we kind of need to have a bit of patience, which is difficult to do when you're sort of living through isolation and lockdown and things like that. But I think we are getting somewhere. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think it is. It's just, you know, people in the public who don't understand how long, you know, these things take are just like, come on, let's get it done. I want to get back to my life. But yeah, I do. I do take sort of. Um, a little bit of solace in the fact that, you know, because of this collaboration, that, that you know, it is going a, a lot faster. They're getting to the answers a little bit quicker. But as you say, it's this giant rock that we're just chipping away at. We've also learned that the virus is particularly clever in the way that it crosses into the brain, directly affecting it. Did you learn any more about this doing the story? Well, I've, I've done a, a story before on on uh, the what it's called the blood-brain barrier. So in the body, there are gaps between the cells that line the interior of blood vessels, and that allows small molecules to pass from the blood into the tissue. But in the brain, the gaps are much tighter, and that's to keep out the toxins. You know, the brain's smart. It's like, no, I'm going to save myself here. But it's been documented that the virus can transmit not just within the nerves of the brain, but it can also cross the connections between the brain, which, you know, the synapses, which allows it to spread. So it sounds really scary. But the interesting thing is that it could be one of the reasons 
why one of the first symptoms is this anosmia, you know, this lack of smell. So the virus droplets from other people, they come in through the mouth or the eyes, which I don't think a lot of people know about, and it goes down into the nose and it enters the brain through the nose before spreading around the rest of the body. And okay, maybe that wasn't the most reassuring thing to tell you, but instead of freaking out, let's act like a scientist and say, oh, wow, isn't that really cool? I think you've earned yourself another honorary doctorate. You're really clocking them up. I'm I'm losing wall space here. I need to move. So with all this additional information that you're clocking up, like, do we need to behave differently when it comes to noticing symptoms or detecting whether we've got it ourselves? I think we're all, because we're all sort of learning as we go along, aren't we? So we are getting a little bit smarter about what to look for. Um, And it's certainly, you know, the more we hear, it's reason to be sort of aware of how you're feeling. And if you're unsure, you call your doctor. But I think the more serious manifestations are appearing in those with moderate to severe symptoms. So Professor Stevens says that because it can be challenging for doctors to accurately document neurological problems in severely ill patients who, you know, they might be under heavy sedation, for example, um, the physicians should be performing these detailed neurological history and examinations and, and maybe get a neurologist in or do additional testing. So look, after all that, Shinny, oh, I just can't wait to talk about your story, which will be far more calming under the sea. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, the focus of scientific research for many scientists across the world has shifted. The Nippon Foundation Gebco Seabed 2030 project has been determined to continue mapping the world's seafloors throughout these unprecedented times. So why are we trying to map the ocean floors? What's going on down there that is so important? Well, that's exactly what they're hoping to find out. They would love to discover things that they don't already know, and the oceans are a rich source of undiscovered territory. Robin Beeman, a scientist at James Cook University who's working on the project with his team, says that while the surfaces of Mars and the Moon have been 100% mapped by satellites, only 20% of our seabeds have actually been surveyed. I guess from a science perspective, it was fascinating because we went out to this part of the Coral Sea that hadn't been very well mapped before. We, were, we really didn't know much about what was living down there. The ROV gave us that picture. So we had the, the beauty of having these very, very detailed three-dimensional maps of the seafloor. But importantly, we put, could put a camera down there, a high-resolution res, 4K vision camera, and we could see not only what the seafloor was made of, you know, whether it was rock or mud or sand or what have you, but also what was living in amongst it, both the invertebrate marine life but also the, the vertebrate life, the fish, the sharks. And so we just got this, you know, all-encompassing picture of what the, what the marine life was like in an area that previously we just had very little understanding of. What's an ROV, Shinny? An ROV is a remotely operated vehicle. And this was crucial for being able to take a look at what's going on one kilometre under the ocean's surface. Uh, You couldn't have a person down there sort of operating this amazing vehicle that's completely kitted up with incredible technology. And so it was all done remotely, which during this time of the pandemic was fundamental. 
It's such a great distance, one kilometre. I mean, you think about driving it. Notice I said driving it and not running it, Shinny. If you think, you know, from, you look at one kilometre in distance and they're going that far down under the, under the sea. But from what I gather, this has also been an interesting example of how to do something like this during COVID-19. Yeah, I must say that this story provided so much hope that it's not all doom and gloom during the time of COVID-19. You know, some good things are coming out of being in lockdown. And this story was absolutely one of them. Because as a result of not being able to allow a crew to be on board this research vessel, they had to find alternatives. And so they kicked into action and they started to gather a team that were mostly in Australia, but uh, there were many people collaborating from other parts of the world. And they were able to pull together this massive expertise. And together with live streaming and Wi-Fi connection and telecommunications across the globe, they managed to carry out their research unimpeded. In fact, I think it was actually a better result because they were able to see in real time the data that they were collecting. And it was absolutely mind-blowing from a visual point of view. Robin Beeman tells us more about the expedition. Most of what you see on the uh, YouTube is the the main science camera. It's a 4K vision uh, camera. It's looking straight ahead. Um, It's about the size of a large car. It's about three and a half tonne in size. So it, in my spare bedroom where I'm speaking to you, it's about the size of that. Um, it's got a lot more technology on it than what you would see in the vision. It has a very precise navigation uh, instruments on it so that the ship knows exactly where it is, you know, physically in space, both, you know, in, you know, in three dimensions and, of course, with four dimensions time. It knows exactly where it is. The beauty of that is that we, we have these great three-dimensional maps of the seafloor from the multi-beam sonar. We, each day before we put the ROV down, we would plan out the, the mission, the next day's ROV mission. We knew exactly where we wanted to put it. We knew what the shape of the seafloor was like. We'd say, for instance, if, it, if, the exp- if we were very curious about the rock type or we wanted to run the ROV across, let's say, one of these undersea landslide scarps where we wanted to look at that kind of three-dimensional cut into the, the reef itself, we would plan the ROV to go exactly across this. And, and of course, this exact, that's what we did. Uh, I don't want to bring up money because it's a filthy, filthy thing. But how much did this project cost? Well, you know, all in all, it's claimed that it's about $3 billion to do this research project, which sounds like a lot of money. But actually, when you think about how much it costs to send people to space, it's a mere drop in the ocean, literally. (laughs) You saw what I did there. Come on, you're not a dad and you're not that old. Come on. It's actually, you know, it's it, it's it's really quite incredible that they're able to finally put these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together to have an understanding of the planet we live on. And it costs so much less than kind of discovering other planets. So 
as much as I love space, it does seem really weird that, you know, we haven't explored every little bit of, of Earth under the water and, and above it. Just seemed, yeah, it seems so strange. But look, I, I did love this story um, and all those beautiful images. What a shame you didn't get to film them. But never mind. Uh, but can you describe some of the most interesting things that you saw in this, in the, in this footage? I mean, there was around 90 plus hours of B-roll, which for a producer is an absolute dream come true because there was so much footage to choose from. But what did it for me was talking to Robin and really kind of being infected with his enthusiasm for the types of creatures that he saw down there. I mean, at one point he was saying that he was even afraid to go and make a cup of tea because he might have missed something. I mean, you know, those cameras were running all the time. And so it was like kind of watching Big Brother, but ocean style, you know, and it was just incredible, the creatures they saw down there. There was one creature in particular which was supposed to be extinct, and that just went swimming across the wow. screen. It's such a different world down there. It actually feels more kind of alien than space because you know not much nothing lives up there mm. essentially um but down there there's just so many creatures and so kind of odd brightly colored which you wouldn't expect when you're so far down i mean what's the point of being brightly colored when you're so deep and no light can travel down there but you know nature just blows my mind every single time because the colors are to protect them and everything has a function and it's all so beautiful and I can see why Robin Beeman was just so in awe of doing it. He did really come alive. I mean, you could just hear the joy. He was like a little kid at Christmas morning kind of thing when he started to describe it. But I must say, I got just as excited as him when Dumbo, the, the Dumbo octopus, you know, basically sort of flapped its, it did look like ears flapped across the screen. It was phenomenal. I know. Absolutely incredible. And the footage, the quality of the fish, the quality of the footage was so incredible. I mean, they had 10 cameras on that submersible, Sebastian. Um, and it, I mean, they were able to capture things from every single angle and maneuver it with such control and precision. So if they were swimming past and they suddenly saw something behind it, they were able to turn the camera around and go chase it to really get those close-up images. So we're trying a new segment this week, which is kind of uncanny timing because uh, Emma and I are going to be talking about our favourite science topics from the week. And uh, we've been talking about the space race and how that relates to exploring more of our planet Earth. But my actual topic that has captured my absolute curiosity and interest has been what's been happening with SpaceX and the splashdown that happened this weekend. Oh, yes, I saw that. I don't know how they do that. But anyway. So as a catch-up, most of us have been watching the fact that two NASA astronauts were sent to the International Space Station. And we... A lot of us watched the launch and it was really exciting, a lot of drama, a lot of um, hope pinned on the launch that day in May. And they've just come back after 62 days in space. And it was such an amazing re-entry back onto Earth. And oh my gosh, I was glued 
to my iPad watching uh, those two astronauts come back. Did you see it? Yeah, yeah. So talk talk through the, the splashdown. I mean, I saw it, but it's, it's your story. So the splashdown involved uh, the Crew Dragon capsule plunging back down to Earth um, before it hit the Earth's atmosphere. It was travelling at a speed of 26,000 kilometres per second. And, um, and, and then, you know, it landed in the ocean um, off of New Mexico. Oh, nice spot. yeah and and it was just uh it was just the amount of kind of technology involved engineering precision uh gosh elon musk must have been so stressed out that day and just for the whole mission and it just went so smoothly and so beautifully and you know those astronauts are probably back home with their family now they might be sunning themselves and and you know in the ocean who knows well gosh i mean they were actually carried out on stretchers because you know 64 days yeah. of being in space uh, must have taken its toll on the human body but like it was just it was it was historic that moment why do why why do you think that was historic compared to you know other historic moments it marks the um, change in perspective because I think, you know, before now it was all about the space race and nations kind of getting together and trying to show, you know, outdo each other in terms of getting to mm. space and getting to the moon and, you know, all of that space exploration. But this is different because there's a commercial aspect to it. You know, as NASA was mm. working together with SpaceX. That's never been done before. And what's so cool is that, you know, NASA's outsourcing various technological aspects of space travel. And so we're one step closer to living on different kind of planets, really. It was all just a fantasy until now. There's always been this hope that one day we might be living on other planets. I mean, Emma, you did that brilliant um, episode on Mars, you know, and so a lot of research has gone into what it would be like living on other planets and things like that. But one of the key things is just getting there. And I think this recent expedition um, really kind of, I mean, it was a demo to see if we could get two people there and back safely. And now that it's been done, you know, NASA certifies SpaceX as being able to do this now. And that's why it's historic, because... You know, before it was like, you know, using rockets that could only be used once, whereas SpaceX has designed the technology so it can be reused, which is why it's so much cheaper than before. I mean, it's making space travel much more accessible than ever before. And so this idea of having people living or traveling to space and living out there is less of a fantasy. And I think we're one step closer to it becoming a reality. Okay, we may be a, a while off, but, you know, SpaceX has only been developing their technology for six years. And, you know, it kind of makes you think, gosh, how long will they need before, you know, rather than going to the Caribbean on an amazing holiday, you're actually going to space instead. Well, as per usual, I am keeping my feet firmly on the ground and <laughs> not going underwater or going up in the sky because I do get wobbly knees when that happens. Uh, and I was reading an article on the sciencemag.org. So this article... Uh, it's looking at how young female athletes all over the world 
are being driven to lose weight to improve their performance because you know it's in our minds isn't it that that you know lose weight you'll you'll perform better if you're if you're an athlete if you're a runner you see those those very slim runners um, hoofing it down the track so but the science is now saying that hang on maybe it could be doing the opposite so last year i don't know if you saw that story shani there was female runners came forward saying that they were being bullied about their weight there's that belief lighter is better but uh, that's based on a small amount of studies of performance and body mass index or bmi um and it's mostly these studies have been done on men and that is not unusual in sport you would think that you know they'd be doing all these um lots of studies on both sexes but often most of the studies have been done on men and then they just go oh yeah same, same, a little bit different, and it'll apply to women. So the Massachusetts General Hospital in the US has looked back at the data from their 2,200 men and women referred to them from, I think it was about 2011 to 2019, to the hospital's cardiovascular performance program. And then the scientists assess fitness, and they measure the maximum amount of oxygen a person uses during aerobic exercise, known as VO2 max. Mine would be quite low, considering I haven't really left the couch in a few months. But... Uh, for men and women over 30, uh, if they had a lower BMI, it generally meant that they were more aerobically fit. But in young women, um, they had higher, if they, if they had a higher BMI of around 23, um, that would mean that, so that would be a woman of about, you know, five foot five, weighing about, I don't know, 63 kilos or, or whatever, that that she would be fit in that sense. And, and you'd think, well, that, that, Usually with an athlete, that would be quite heavy for an athlete. But um, the study is suggesting that a young woman being at a, a low weight may be counterproductive to improving performance. And it can also be dangerous to health. Shinny, any idea why? Because uh, you don't actually have fuel in your body and muscle mass is much heavier than fat. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, body composition, they, they say that that's, you know, that could be part of it. But also, and this is it, women don't even know how their bodies operate. The distribution of fat and muscle in young women is still changing when they when they're younger, and then weight loss. If you're a female athlete, it can lead to irregular periods, anemia, loss of bone density. One of the Nike athletes talked about the fact that she had all these bone bone, uh, bone breakages, um, and also um, you know she didn't have a period for three years, which is you know really not good. And of course, then there's the development of eating disorders. So I just, the reason I just found this really um, interesting was that, you know, the world is so obsessed with being really skinny um, and, you know, especially for, for athletes. But the other part of it was that um, so many more studies, it seems, have been done on men than women when it comes to sport. And it's just dangerous it means that that you know these women are not performing to their optimum level because you know the information that they're relying on has basically been drawn from studies on men and it's not that long ago that that you know it, this was all happening it's only really quite recently we've got you know more female doctors and physios and you know all that sort of thing are coming in and they're going hang on hang on where are the women in the studies <laughs> but I think yeah it's quite surprising that yeah it, it, I just didn't realise how long this has been going on. I think the conclusion of this is that we still need more women in STEM. It's back to that age-old problem that we <laughs> have encountered because without diverse and inclusive teams in science, you're never going to get a diverse and inclusive perspective on things. So more women in STEM, please, and sports and everything else. So that's it for another edition of Razor. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
And, and if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGTN Europe and type in Razor. Until next time, see ya.